From deep inside the vaults of the Holmes Archive of Electronic Music, here is Tom Holmes, your curator and guide to vintage electronic music and audio experimentation. This episode, electronic music from radios. So for some time now, I've wanted to share some recordings from the archive of works that were composed using radio sounds. If you were to create such a piece, how would you imagine that it could be organized? What process would you use to create a work of radio sounds when the radio was the musical instrument? Let's explore a handful of compelling works that did just that and the different approaches taken by their composers. This diverse set of experimental works will be presented in chronological order and include two versions of John Cage's radio music, written in 1956, Dick Raymaker's Ballada Erkoleg from 1967, Karl Heinz Stockhausen Herzvalen from 1968, Michael Snow, Two Radio Solos from 1980, and Anne Hamilton, Mantle from 1998. The second version of radio music that we'll hear will be by Philip Perkins, and it's from 1989. The approaches and practices of each of these composers turns the idea of radio inside out so that the radio is no longer a mere receiver of information from the outside, but a source of unique musical expression of its own. The first work we will hear is the ancestor of them all, Radio Music by John Cage. The piece was composed in 1956 during Cage's first decade of composing using chance operations. He would conceive of a work and then use coin-tossing techniques derived from the I Ching to make choices and decisions for the music. This technique effectively removed any personal choice and emotional decisions from a composition. When I once spoke with him about whether this could be considered a random process or not, he told me that he didn't really believe there was such a thing as randomness, only a person's idea of randomness. So, This process, by removing his personal choice from the composition, was his conception of randomness. In any event, many of the works composed in this way were closely timed as to the duration of individual parts as well as the overall work. 
Prior to this, he had already composed music for radios using chance operations. Uh, Imaginary Landscape Number 4 is a case in point, but he found that in performance, the 12 radios that were set up often found a lot of empty airwaves and white noise. I think people commented that the piece was too quiet. So an antidote to that was his radio music of 1956, which, although it still uses chance operations, he limited the uh, range of frequencies to um, narrower band on the AM dial, thus more or less guaranteeing that there would be something there when the radios were switched on. Radio music is intended to be exactly six minutes long. The description of the piece sounds simple enough. To be performed as a solo or ensemble for one to eight performers, each at one radio. The associated score, however, provided instructions for the musicians. The score consisted of columns of numbers indicating which frequencies should be played on the radios, all selected by chance operations. It indicated that the performance could only use 56 different frequencies between 55 and 156 kilohertz. It was notated with numbers and was not on a conventional musical staff. All of these choices were made by chance operations, so there is literally only an unintended uniformity to the composition. Cage indicated that the work was in four sections to be programmed by the player or players with or without intervening silences. The score consisted of instructions for the four sections, each being similar to the others. For example, here is an excerpt from the instructions for the first section. Each tuning to be expressed by maximum amplitude, a blank, which is indicated in the score uh, by an underscored uh, blank space, indicates silence obtained by reducing amplitude approximately to zero. Before beginning to play, turn radio on with amplitude near zero. So radio music was to be performed live and in real time and was vulnerable to whatever radio frequencies were available in the room or the space where it was being performed. One must also realize that the score was made in 1956 and related to frequencies then available only on the AM radio spectrum. Shortwave broadcasts were not considered, and FM was only a future development. There is no recording of which I am aware, with Cage himself being a part of the performance. But several renditions were realized over the years. We will hear two interpretations of radio music so that you can see how the piece can differ over time due to the availability of appropriate airwaves. The first is played by three musicians, Gianni Emilio Simonetti, Juan Hidalgo, and Walter Marchetti from an Italian recording made in 1974. This performance was made at a time when the suggested radio frequencies were still in use, although even then much of the radio spectrum was shifting to the FM dial. These performers were very serious about interpreting Cage. In their notes, which I translate clumsily into English, they say, this piece rejects the fetish of exchange that nestles behind the cultural commodity of radio. 
In their interpretation, each of these performers used a Panasonic Radio Model RF-1600B receiver, and they recorded the work in real time as it was intended, but they used the shortwave bands instead of the AM bands after having transposed the frequencies from Cage's score to a correspondingly narrow range of shortwave signals. The second performance of radio music, which I will play later in the program, was recorded by American Philip Perkins in 1989 in his private studio. His realization of radio music is a good example of how a musician needed to adapt the score for the technology and radio frequencies of the times. Let's give a listen now to Radio Music by John Cage, as interpreted by Simonetti, Hidalgo, and Marchetti in 1974. You are listening to the Archive of Electronic Music. Thank you. 
The next work of radio music we will hear is a tape piece by Dick Raymakers from the Netherlands. It's called Ballada Erkeleg. It was composed in 1966, based around the writing of Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. In Raymakers' notes, he was somewhat reticent about describing the process of composition for this work, but he did say that all of the sounds heard were derived from radio and telephone. One can assume from listening that these sounds were carefully organized and assembled, perhaps processed using a tape studio. Raymakers was fascinated with the symbolic reach of shortwave signals. He described the piece as taking place in the poor man's realm of formlessness, from where incomprehensible messages couched in tiny signals, noises, Rattles, notes, chores, and voices emerged in an unbroken stream. In telling Goethe's tale of an underworld king, a sick boy, and his father, Raymakers added, it reproduces the ever-changing moods of the three in a paramusical meeting of the linguistically rich lines of Goethe on the one side, and on the other hand, the linguistically impoverished, multi-interpretable signals from the domain of the ether. He also indicated somewhat vaguely some of the parameters he kept in mind while composing the tape piece. Ballada is characterized by the absence of both acoustic and cultural depth. It has only length equals duration and height equals loudness. 
all of which can be represented without prejudice by the objective shortwave signals that are at once connected, yet disconnected, from the human experience. Whereas Cage relied on chance to account for the sounds that appeared in his piece without interjecting his taste or emotions, Raymaker's piece was carefully curated and edited for maximum emotional impact and intended from the outset to be a fixed, complete work. Let's hear Ballada Erkelig by Dick Raymakers.
That was Ballada Erkelig by Dick Raymakers. Now we have a seminal work, or at least a small part of it, from the innovative German composer Karl-Heinz Stockhausen. We will hear an excerpt from Herzweilen, an ensemble piece in which the musicians were asked to react to signals they received on randomly tuned shortwave radios. The ensemble instruments were piano, electronium, a large tam-tam with microphone, viola, and contact microphone, two filters with four faders and four shortwave receivers. The work could also be interpreted by a different combination of these instruments. But for the recording, this was his ensemble piece for a group that he had been working with in live concerts for quite some time. Herzweilen differs significantly from his other famous shortwave work, Hymnen, which was essentially fully composed and fixed. In Herzweilen, his ensemble was responding in real time to cues they received from whatever shortwave sounds were in the air. As he said, each player has, in addition to his instrument, a shortwave receiver with which he receives the musical material to which he reacts. He imitates it, transposes it, and modulates it, playing together with the others in reciprocal reactions and intermodulations. Although Stockhausen often used the term improvised to describe what the ensemble was up to, they were at the same time guided as much by the score as by their own instincts. During performance, each player was asked to quietly locate shortwave signals that corresponded to the degree of change prescribed in the score. Musicians were required to avoid passages of unmodulated spoken word or music while searching the airwaves. Stockhausen again. The rhythm, timbre, melodic contour, and envelope of an event played on an instrument should be as close an imitation as possible of the event to which one is reacting and transposed according to the prescribed degree of change. When and how often a player alternates between shortwave and instrumental events is left to his discretion. Completely unmodulated, realistic shortwave events should be avoided. There is an elaborate score for the work written out in four parts for the four players and a combined score for the sound mixer who was Stockhausen. As the sound mixer, Stockhausen could also apply audio filters to components of the mix. The score itself does not use musical notation, but plus, minus, and equal signs for creating 128 events based on what the individual musicians were hearing on the shortwave sets. The plus, minus, and equal symbols referred to the dynamics of the sound that could be played to accompany the shortwave signals, louder, softer, more rapid, and so forth. So let's listen to a section of Herzweilen. Notes on the players and recording can be found in the playlist of the podcast website. This is an excerpt from an unusual greatest hits collection of Stockhausen's work, although the entire piece was also released as a double LP at the time. This is Tom Holmes. You are listening to Electronic Music from Radios on the Archive of Electronic Music. Thank <laughs> you. 
You've been listening to an excerpt from Herzvalen by Karl-Heinz Stockhausen on the Archive of Electronic Music, Electronic Music from Radios episode. In 1980, Canadian filmmaker, musician, and composer Michael Snow recorded some music he improvised for shortwave radio. Each of the two radio solos are lengthy, about 30 minutes each, so we'll hear an excerpt from the first one. The energy of these works is kinetic and fast-paced, whereas Cage and Stockhausen carefully scored their instructions for their radio works. Snow chooses to improvise more in the spirit of a jazz player. He has a long-standing interest in improvised music and is a professional jazz pianist. In this work, Snow sits at a shortwave set and fine-tunes the frequencies to capture the drifting signals as they are received. You can feel the patience with which he caresses the airwaves, tweaking new sounds from in between other frequencies. One will notice that some of the sound becomes sped up. Rather than being a post-production manipulation, this was apparently due to the battery running low on the tape recorder while making the piece. To quote Snow from his notes, there was no editing, no post-facto electronic alteration. The sounds were found by paying intense attention to fate, tuning in and out and between stations, changing bands, bass, treble, and volume. The tapes were made at night in a remote North Canadian cabin lit by a kerosene lamp. This piece, then, for radio is more in the spirit of what most of us think of as improvisation, minimal rules, maximum listening, and interaction with the sound. Let's listen to an excerpt from Short Wavelength by Michael Snow from 1980. 
jóvenes artistas plásticos y de los calendarios diseñadores para el año que viene. ตัวนั้นยังอย่างบ้านด้วยเยี่ยมมุมมุ่งหน้าฟุบฟุบเสบายในบีตายันในบีมีดีเลยเยี่ยมอันนี้เนี่ยยังสันนิยามจังที่อ
Stellinger belegte hier Platz 17 in der WM für Eckerold mit 47 Punkten vor Mang 33 und dem Sonntag ausgefallenen Johnny Cecotto 30. Ich 
This is Tom Holmes. You are listening to Electronic Music from Radios on the Archive of Electronic Music. Next up is an alternative version of radio music by John Cage that was done in the late 1980s by Philip Perkins, the American sound artist. I had an interesting exchange with Philip around his version of radio music. He and I have been acquainted since the days when I used to write about his sound works and albums in the 1980s. I recalled that he had done some radio pieces way back when, and voila, I found one. His version of Cage's radio music released only on a cassette in 1989. Such a rarity. After stating that I was the first person to ever ask him about his version of the work, he explained in quite some detail the challenges of producing a piece designed for AM radio in the 50s more than 30 years later in the late 1980s. He bought the score and got permission to create a new version. He decided to use his primitive recording studio with an 8-track analog recorder and adapt the piece to what he could accomplish under those circumstances. Philip then explained to me, radio music calls for eight players with eight radios playing at once. For my solo studio realization, I used the eight channels of my tape deck to perform the radio tuning aspects of the eight parts of the piece one after another. Having done this, I thought that since I was having to compromise the original premise of the piece by performing the parts serially as overdubs instead of all at once, I should then take advantage of being in a studio and add aspects to the sounds that were only available in recording studios in those days. Thus, each recorded radio byte was subjected to a chance operation via dice throws that would have it be affected by 
the simple audio signal processing equipment I had on hand at the time. As I recall, the choices were pan within the stereo field, reverb, fairly deep to sound different from the reverb pop songs had on them already, slowed down and thus pitch shifted, speeded up, bass or treble boost EQ, distortion via a guitar pedal, and sample plus loop. The low-budget sampler I had in those days would only record a few seconds of sound and then could play it forwards or backwards while looping that sound. I played those loops to the durations specified in the score. So in the end, he just didn't record a bunch of random radio sounds but adapted the score as best he could while remaining true to Cage's intent. He added that because the radio landscape had changed so much since Cage had composed this piece, most of the more sonically interesting radio was now in the FM band, so Philip translated those AM frequencies specified in the score by Cage to FM frequencies by roughly aligning the two bands and then seeing how far each of Cage's AM frequencies was from the low end of that band then tuning the FM radio to that same relative position. He added, It was an interesting experiment for me to try while making a lot of truly live radio works with other players at the time. When it came to releasing the CD version of that cassette, rather than licensing the cage piece again, he decided to let the cassette release speak for itself and added his own works in place of radio music, to the CD version of the album. That explanation was probably longer than the six-minute work, but let's now hear radio music as realized by Philip Perkins. This is Tom Holmes, and you are listening to Electronic Music from Radios on the Archive of Electronic Music.
and that's why the lead is just three points now. 11 at 2006-23 in the All Resources. After they've expressed anger, they feel angrier. They have made the other person angry. in that situation with Sammy White because you described it. When I know you sat in the house. Estuvo con todos sus familiares, estuvo con sus amigas y todo. Cuando llega... listening to the archive of electronic music. This is Tom Holmes. Of the works we've heard so far that use the radio as a musical instrument, there is one for which the radio sounds were selected by chance and the piece performed in real time, 
one in which shortwave radio signals serve as spontaneous inspiration for an ensemble of musicians being guided in their responses by a score, a third that was an improvisation in which the radio signal was the material itself, carefully tuned and played by a single musician, and a fourth which was a new interpretation of a work composed in the 1950s but adapted to the radio landscape and technology of the 1980s. For our final example, we will turn to artist Anne Hamilton and her work Mantle from 1998. Hamilton created Mantle as part of a site-specific art exhibit at the Miami Art Museum in 1998. The situation was interesting, and the radios were but one component of the scene. In the 3,500-square-foot space, a 48-foot-long table covered with flowers was the center of attention. Recorded sound in the form of muffled and mechanical voices emanated from 30 loudspeakers buried in the flowers. High up on a shelf, however, were also 13 shortwave radios, all tuned to different frequencies and playing constantly. The sound of the shortwave was loud enough to blend with or mask the sounds coming from the loudspeakers among the flowers, which disguised the sound sources to the visitor. Whereas Michael Snow's piece was improvised in a real sense by his manipulation of the radio signals, Hamilton's piece coexisted with the exhibit itself and played continuously without any intervention other than to occasionally tune in the radio signals. The recordings were made during a single day on hourly intervals to capture the changing shortwave tapestry that filled the room. This example represents yet another variation on the theme of the radio as musical instrument. In this case, the radios play unattended without any human interaction, and the recording captures the moments that were unique to that day and time. Here are the nine tracks released on CD by the Miami Art Museum to accompany the exhibit.
Welcome back. You've been listening to Mantle by Anne Hamilton, a museum installation in 1998 that featured the sound of 13 shortwave radios playing at once. This concludes this episode of the Archive of Electronic Music. Details and more than you'll ever need to know about each of these works are located in the playlist on the podcast website. Notes from the program are found on my blog, Noise and Notations, located at tomholmes.com. If you would like to learn more about the history of electronic music, please read my book, Electronic and Experimental Music, published by Routledge, in print or as an e-book. Thank you for listening to the Archive of Electronic Music. All of the music heard in this podcast, unless otherwise indicated, is brought to you from the Holmes Archive of Electronic Music, a curated collection of vintage recordings. For a complete playlist, go to theholmesarchive.podbean.com. All crackles, surface noise, and other imperfections heard in this podcast are purely intentional. All intro, outro, and other incidental music is by Tom Holmes, unless otherwise noted in the playlist. For notes about this episode, please see the blog Noise and Notations at tomholmes.com. So long from deep inside the Holmes Archive of Electronic Music. <laughs>